Good morning. My name is Greg Moore. Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Romans 3, 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There was no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is the word of the Lord. So today, the title of my sermon is The Truth, colon, We Have a Problem. I guess it's not up there. So imagine it for a minute. Adjust your focus to the invisible. (laughs) The truth, colon, we have a problem. That's the title. But before I say something about this passage, I want to give you some hope because next week, this this is not easy to do as a preacher. You, You always want to give people all the good news, at least at the end. Next week, we're going to continue in this same passage, and the title of that sermon is The Truth, colon, We Have a Solution, okay? So please come back. Uh, If you feel dark, um, just sing that song that Adam led you in uh, throughout the week and come back Sunday. Um, you know, the best critic is always a critic from the inside, or it seems to be that way. Um, you listen better because that critic knows you. You listen better because that critic uh, understands your circumstances. You hear better when it's an inside critic. My wife frequently says, well, whenever the kids tell you this, you get it, right? Right? Um, I'm not going to go into that, but you know what that's like. Um, it's true. You know, especially an adult child, they'll say, Dad, you know, you're like this, or why are you acting like that, or straight up, you got a problem. Um, I do listen better when they say it because they're an insider. So when you uh, hear the passage that was just read, There's sections of it I want to refer to that preceded the reading. What is is best to understand in order to understand this text is that Paul sounds like he's shouting at people 
as though he doesn't have the problem. That's not true. Paul was the ultimate insider. So in the first part of chapter 3, he's talking to his Jewish fellow followers of Yahweh. And he's calling them out. And he's giving them some harsh criticism. Not, not only was he an insider, in other words, he was in their court. Some people have suggested, I thought it very intriguing. I'd never run into this until last week. Some people suggest, you know when an interlocutor is? It's the person that you're arguing with and responding to, right? We don't know who it was here. He just talks to these people. Someone suggested in something I read this week, Paul might have been talking to himself. So I want to use that as something of an interpretive tool. Okay? So at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, Paul gives some really dark news. And of course, in the section we read, it also is dark. Basically, in Romans chapter 3, the beginning of this chapter and later uh, in our reading, he criticizes his fellow Jews here and in other places for their self-righteousness, for thinking they're better than everybody else. They thought of themselves, and Paul did too, as God's special chosen people. And apparently to the audience to which Paul was addressing, that simply meant that God was on their side. And they expected God to be on their side because they were righteous. Why wouldn't God be on our side? Paul said to them, and perhaps to himself, you and I have an expectation concerning the covenant. We expect the covenant to protect us. We follow God. He's the ultimate God, and he'll protect us. They and he believed themselves on numerous occasions to be more righteous than the other. It was almost always in reference to the Gentiles, as you can see in this passage and other places. Oh, we're not like them. At least we're not that bad. Remember the Pharisee praying out loud that was recorded in the Gospels? Lord, I'm, I'm grateful I'm not like that publican over there. I'm not bad like him. I tithe. I do all the right things. Paul basically is picking up the theme and saying, you believe you're more righteous than them. They also seem to think that even though they may have sinned, their sin wasn't as bad as the other people's sin. That seems to have been the mindset that Paul is speaking into as an internal critic, an insider. In speaking to that, he asks a question. Oh, actually, I have an outline. I don't know if it's up there. Uh, yeah. So go back to the first one, because that's the second one. No, I guess it's not up there. <laughs> first one was supposed to be Paul criticizes his own tradition, right? He criticizes the tradition that is his. And the second one, of course, as you saw, is Paul reinterprets his own tradition. So we can go to that slide. Paul, like Jesus, 
reinterprets the tradition that they're living in. He redefines the reality that they think they have accepted properly. Paul steps into it and he says, you think there's an advantage in being a Jew, don't you? So what is the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any advantage to being a Jew? And his answer is in the affirmative, absolutely. Much in every way. It doesn't mean you have to be arrogant, but you have got a big advantage. Why do you have a big advantage? Because the law of God was given to you. It wasn't given to the Philistines or any of the rest of the Canaanite tribes. It was given to you. That's a huge advantage. You have to make it more trite. You got a playbook for life. It's a dramatic advantage. Also, you do have an advantage because in being given the law, you've also received grace. Now, before you lapse into some contemporary thinking concerning the Old Testament, that grace appeared in the New Testament for the first time and it wasn't in the Old Testament, think again. I don't have enough time for that, but it's nonsense. Grace was all over the place in the Old Testament. And Paul is raising that. You were not faithful, but God is faithful. Just because you and the rest of the world are liars doesn't mean God's going to be a liar. He's going to be faithful. You can count on that. That's an advantage. You've received grace. But here's what Paul seems to be suggesting. Your special position as God's chosen people gives you not a particular right. It gives you a responsibility. If you've been given the law, if you've been given grace, if you understand it, now you've got a responsibility. That's what makes you really special. So Paul reinterprets his own tradition, and then Paul, like Jesus, recommends an internal look. And that came from our reading today. And man, is this hard. So I don't usually reread the text, but I want to reread this. Paul says to his listeners, whoever they are, what shall I conclude then? Or we conclude, do we have an advantage? No, not at all. For we're already, we've already made the charge that the Jews and the Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin, the weight of sin. It's not about actions here. It's about sin weighing us down. That goes all the way back to Romans chapter 1. No, we've already said that. We've already set it up, says Paul. As it is written, he goes on to say, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. Nobody. Nobody gets it. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they become together worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Their throats, there's three images of the mouth in, in, in here. The throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. And the poison of vipers is on their lips. That's a pretty foul mouth. An open grave, poison of vipers on the lips, and the tongue practicing deceit. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Question. Don't answer out loud. When you read those words, heard them, who were you thinking of? I don't know exactly, but I think one word might identify it. Them. The other. And that's when Paul bores in. And without saying it like this, with these, while saying it with these words, he basically says, I'm talking about us. All of us. What's the point of this very dark picture, this very dark list? first thing is to say it's not to suggest that everyone is as bad as they could be. That would just be utter nonsense. We know that's not true. We could all be worse. Our world could be worse. People could be worse. So that's not what he's saying. He's also not suggesting that all sins are equal. He's also not suggesting that everybody is a murderer and a thief and violent. That's not what he's saying. But it sounds like it, doesn't it? Actually, he infers almost explicitly that the law has a function here. It keeps people and restrains them from becoming this thing. It is the law, in effect, that becomes the guardrail against murder and theft and violence. Because God's law holds them in check as it has held you in check. But here's the dark reality. Every single person in the sound of his pen, (laughs) not his voice, has the potential to become these things. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was written by a man called Robert Louis Stevenson. And a quick overview reminder of the story is that, of course, it's the same person. The same person was a physician and apparently started experimenting on himself using certain serums. And to his horror, he realized that he was both and. He was kind and compassionate. And he was also a murderer. 
I don't know if Stevenson was thinking about Romans chapter 7 or anything else when he wrote that story. But you got to wonder. Maybe he was thinking about this passage when he wrote the story. I don't know. Part of the story of his writing of this mysterious description of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde comes from his wife. His wife, on one occasion, realized that he was terrified when he was sleeping in bed. He was just shaking and sweating and going into almost like convulsions. And in kindness, she woke him up to get him out of the dream. And his response to her was, why did you do that? In other words, I was beginning to understand something I'm about to write. Later he did write it. I I think of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and I look at that list. And I think, oh my. Oh my. I have been some of these. And if I haven't been it literally... I know my heart is that sometimes. To make it a little uh, easier to handle than Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, the schizophrenia of a so-called good person, Jesus gives us a similar teaching, doesn't he? When he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I say to you, if you hate your brother, it's the same thing. Jesus said, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but if you lust, it's the same thing. Jesus was basically saying, I can see the inside. And I know where sin comes from. It comes from within. And the law keeps it at bay. But it's down there. Be careful. So, kind of going backwards concerning the question of who came to mind when you heard this list. There's no one righteous. No one seeks God. Mouths are open graves. Who or what are your favorite people, or sins to condemn. What riles you up? What creates inside you a firestone, hellfire and brimstone sermon that you never preach? Here's Jesus' admonition, and I thank Paul. They're not suggesting that there's some things that are wrong. Truth is truth. God's word is true. Let every man be a liar. The Ten Commandments are there for a reason, and the rest of the law of God is there for a reason as well. However, Jesus says, be careful about your condemnation because you need to be careful that it doesn't become you. 
the thing you condemn, it could become you. Paul, like Jesus, um, recommends an internal look, but Paul, like Jesus, also introduces us to grace. After we see this dark list, he introduces us to grace, and that's why I want to invite you to please be back next Sunday. We're going to talk about it in more detail. But I I refer you to a story that you have all heard before in John chapter 8, I think it's verses 1 through 11, where the Pharisees bring a woman who's been caught in adultery to Jesus. They say, according to law, you know, we got two or three witnesses, it's time for a stoning. And Jesus just looks at them. (laughs) And then, make a long story short, he stoops in the ground, starts writing something. Nobody knows what it is. And then he says, those of you who are without sin, you go ahead and you pick up the first stone. Let's get it going, fellas. How many of you are equipped to do that? After he's done writing, he steps back, stands up, and there's none of her accusers are there. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? In other words, woman, where are those people that condemn you? And she said, they've gone. They're not there. And Jesus' words are so incredibly important. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I am not whitewashing your sin. I know it. I'm not pretending like you shouldn't have. You shouldn't have. I'm not pretending like you're okay. You're not okay. But I'm not going to condemn you because I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to give grace. So stop your life of sin. Get on your way and don't sin anymore. There's so many beautiful parts to that. One episode to unpack. Just exquisite beauty. And I can't do it. But think about it for yourself. Paul, understanding that story, no doubt, and understanding his critics, says to them, some of you actually say, well, if grace is real, if forgiveness is extended... If grace is exalted because we're such desperate sinners, then why not just go ahead and sin? The more we sin, the more we glorify God. And Paul says, what the? No, he didn't say that. (laughs) He might have thought it. What in the world are you talking about? You obviously don't understand anything to any extent what I just said. 
You have been given grace, overwhelming, unmerited favor before God, and you're still a sinner. I'll put it in another way that's going to offend a lot of you. You're still a damn sinner. That's what Paul says. Are you kidding me? If you really are a sinner and you have really been forgiven, how in God's name would you say, I'm going to glorify God by sinning more? No, what you would do is click your heels like the person who is healed and run away dancing and shouting and glorifying God for the forgiveness that you've received. You would go away absolutely delighted to please God. Are you kidding me, says Paul? You got it all wrong. To understand grace, my friends, we must first understand sin. If we don't understand sin and embrace that we're sinners, how can we understand grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is forgiveness for being the problem. And if we don't believe we're the problem, we don't get grace because we thought we deserve it anyway. We have to address the gravity of sin in order to understand grace. I have heard it said for 25 years around here, Many people say that their favorite service we do is Good Friday. My Anglican son would say, well, of course it is, Dad, because you're using a prayer book. <laughs> He's right. That order of worship that we always use came from the Anglican church for the most part. I think... I think the reason so many people think it's the best service is because they understand sin and they understand grace because they're side by side in the sermon, the service, not the sermon. How are they side by side? Well, actually, for those of you who remember, we read these very words as a part of our litany. It's called the reproaches. None of you is righteous, not even one. You've all turned away. You're worthless. Your mouths are open graves. You practice deceit. Lips of viper, uh, this poison of vipers is on your lips. Swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark your ways. The way of peace you don't know. There's no fear of God before your eyes. You know, at some level, that's not true. Or else you wouldn't be here on Good Friday. But at another level, it's, it's deeply true. And that's why you love it so much. Because following it comes the words of absolution. You're forgiven. You know what else is... Um, 
This is not the Anglican prayer book, by the way, but one of the other things that's our tradition is we hold up the beauty of grace at the end of the service with a song. We leave the sanctuary in total silence, reflecting on sin and the crucifixion. And we gather around the cross outside. You know the routine. And we sing, when I survey the wondrous cross. Remember how it goes, when I survey the wondrous cross. On which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count as a loss. And poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All those vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his side, his feet. You see all that? It's sorrow and love. Sorrow and love flow and mingle down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Then that stirring last verse were the whole realm of nature mine. If I had it all, that would be a present far too small. Because love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Isaac Watts, with that song, was almost as good as Paul. If Paul had been here, he would have said, Amen, Isaac. You got it right. There was a famous architect in England who said that uh, his memory was beginning to fail him. And he said, but there's two things that I never forget. That I'm a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. That's a good summation too, isn't it? When you journey to that cross, when you make that journey, on your knees, figuratively, on your hands and knees, what you'll find there is a gateway, a door, a new journey, a pathway to grace. But you'll never get it until you approach the cross and realize that he was there for you. I don't know all the people who are here this morning, but there may be someone who's never really made the journey heard the story, 
but you've never gotten there. Maybe there's some people here, and it's probably likely that you've heard the story and you made this journey, but the grace thing just doesn't seem real. <laughs> you, you can't hardly understand it, and you're having trouble receiving it. For, for both of you, whoever you are, I pray that today will be a new turn in the road. Maybe for the first time you'll kneel in front of the cross and understand the depth of your sin and the height of God's grace. Or maybe after you've confessed all your sins from 20 years long ago, you'll finally understand what grace is today. I hope that happens for someone in a new way. And I would be delighted, I know Dan would be delighted to talk to you if you want to come forward and know more and see if we can lead you on the journey. But the last thing I want to say, please come back next week, okay? We're going to talk about grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for grace. We are unworthy. We pray that you will remind us always of our unworthiness so that we can delight in your grace. We pray that our unworthiness will not be the weight of sin. Our unworthiness will be the doorway to grace. That is, we realize what we've been forgiven for. We click our heels like the lame man and dance and walk into the world. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.